Well, I wanted to begin with just this reflection and grounding ourselves so we had kind of a more vivid imagination as well as Paul saying, yeah, I think I actually encountered an angel and you look kind of look just like a human. Um, because I want to begin with a little bit of real history and a story. So in 1916, the angel of peace appeared to three children in Fatima, Portugal, and he had a message for them. God has a plan for you. So the angel came, and uh, this was in the midst of World War I going on. So our American brains, it didn't just begin in 1917. It had been going on for a long time. It's very deadly, um, and Portugal is right in the thick of it. And the angel comes and says, God needs you to be his messengers. He wants you to spread a message of peace, and he's going to do so. He's going to give you the ability to speak his words. Um, and at the time, they really didn't know, but they just knew, you know what, it's important that we pray for sinners and we pray for the conversion of the world and that we trust in God. So the message was God has a plan for you. And he taught him this prayer. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and love you. I ask pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not adore, and do not hope, and who deny you love. So he taught them this prayer, my God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and then please forgive those who do not yet know you. And the three children that this angel appeared to were Lucia, Francisco, and Jacinta. All three shepherd children were not famous by any means when the angel appeared to them, did not have money, did not have power. They were just poor shepherds, just like our Lord would have been. And if you know anything about me, uh, I have my own Jacinta, which adds into the part of this story. So this is my daughter, um, just a little bit over six months, and she is named after St. Jacinta. Uh, so we actually, for Halloween, thought, ah, why don't we just dress her up as little Jacinta? So if I flip back, maybe you can kind of see the recognition in her outfit. So... Um, Obviously, this story is near and dear to my heart. So if you just want to know, Fatima, Portugal, uh, Portugal in the context of Europe, small country, um, you know, during colonial times, it did have some influence. Uh, but we're talking, if we're comparing it to the United States, it might be like a Delaware, like not a very big, important country. And so... But important things happened there. So on May 13th, Mary appeared to the three children. So the angel of peace, the angel of Portugal that came, um, was preparing them for a special visit from Our Lady. Uh, and then on your handout here, you see when Mary appears on the 13th, um, this is from Lucia's own diary, her memoir that she wrote after the fact to kind of explain what had happened. Um, as the church was saying that a true apparition, a true appearance of Mary actually happened here. So 
Listen as I read this encounter. High up on the slope of Cova de Iria, I, Lucia, was playing with Jacinta and Francisco and building a little stone wall around a clump of furzy. Suddenly we saw what seemed to be a flash of lightning. We better go home, I said to my cousins. That's lightning, and we may have a thunderstorm. So we began to go down the slope, hurrying the sheep along toward the road. We had only gotten a few steps further when there before us on a small home oak, we beheld a lady all dressed in white. She was more brilliant than the sun and radiated a light more clear and intense than a crystal glass filled with sparkling water. We stopped astounded. Then our lady spoke to us. Do not be afraid. I will do you no harm. Where are you from? I asked. I am from heaven, responded the lady. What do you want of me? I asked. I have come to ask you to come here for six months in succession on the 13th day at this same hour. Later on, I will tell you who I am and what I want. Afterwards, I will return here yet a seventh time, said the lady. Shall I go to heaven too? I asked. Yes, you will, she replied. And Jacinta, I asked. She will go also. She responded, and Francisco, I asked, he will go there too, but he must say many rosaries, she added. Then I remembered to ask about two girls who died recently. They were friends of mine and used to come to my home to learn weaving with my eldest sister. Is Maria das Neves in heaven, I inquired. Yes, she is, replied the lady. And Amelia, I added, she will be in purgatory until the end of the world, the lady responded. She continued, Are you going to offer yourselves to God and bear all the sufferings he wills to send you as an act of reparation for the sins by which he is offended and of supplication for the conversion of sinners? Yes, we are willing, I responded for us. Then you are going to have to suffer much, but the grace of God will be your comfort, said the lady. And she pronounced these last words. As she pronounced these last words, Our Lady opened her hands for the first time, communicating to us a light so intense as it streamed from her hand, its rays penetrated our hearts and the innermost depths of our souls, making us see ourselves in God, who was that light, more clearly than we see ourselves in the best of mirrors. And then I made a note there, if you saw it at the bottom, when it says, until the end of the world, Lucia notes in her memoirs this could have been just for a while or a long time. But uh, on your handout, too, you'll see kind of just a brief timeline of events, and I'm not going to recount all of these point by point, um, but it's documented that the children went out to the same location at the same time over the next six months, and at first it was just them. And then kind of as the story spread, the rumors were passed along. People were interested and said, did this really happen? Is she really appearing? So over the course of the next six months, more people come to see what happens. And the children are able to see Mary. For a lot of people, they see that they're possibly talking with somebody. But... 
no one can see her as well. But more people are still so intrigued, so they kind of keeps on building and building um, until I'm going to skip forward to October 13th, when over 70,000 people were there to witness whether Mary would appear or not. And on that day, it was raining before and then during the apparition. Mary promised that the war would soon end and exhorted the children to perseverance, to continue to bear all things for God. As the apparition ended up and she ended the communication with the children, what happened amazed everyone as people recounted that the sun danced across the sky. So the sun moved. It wasn't just fixed. Um, it swayed. It actually came so close to earth that people thought it was going to come crashing down. And then after the sun had returned to normal, it was that everything was dry. Everything had been miraculously dried. It was raining, but no one had rain on their clothes anymore. There was no wet, soggy socks. Everything had been dried up. And so there were people there that believed in the Catholic faith. They knew who Mary was, trust in her maternal guidance. And there were people there just to spike on the children and be like, nothing is ever going to happen. You are a bunch of liars. This whole God thing, forget about it. And everyone that day, 70,000 people, walked away amazed at what had happened. <coughs> so her message throughout the entire time was a challenge. God wants you to pray. And she especially wants the children to pray the rosary and be devoted to her immaculate heart. And then they must fast. They must suffer. And they did it with such childlike simplicity. I know I can't skip lunch during the day, but they would go days where they'd go and give their lunch to the poor, and they'd be willing to bear these things for the sake of Mary and her mission of consoling the heart of her son. And that's why they did it. They did it for the conversion of sinners, to console the sacred heart of Jesus. And then if we're thinking in our minds too, 1917 is when this all happened. We're right on the step of the communist revolution in Russia. And for as much today, you hear a lot of people say, well, I'm not a bad person because I'm not as bad as Hitler. When you consider the atrocities that Russia has committed as a country and its waywardness, there's a reason why Mary said, you need to pray for Russia right now because they have committed as much evil. And this is the part that I think I, I take away the most from this story of Fatima. It's that God's not willing to write them off. So he doesn't say smite Russia. He's saying, pray for the conversion of Russia. I still have a plan for them. They might be going wayward now, but pray for them that they might turn and repent. So I find it's a message of hope because God doesn't condemn any of us when we still have the opportunity to come to him. He prays, for, he asks that we pray for each other's conversion so that they might come to know him. And so with Russia, 
he says, I still have a place for them, should they come to me. So just a few pictures of the vast crowds here on October 13th. You can see how many people were gathered. These are real pictures. As we get ready to talk about the last four things, I just want to read you these two paragraphs from the spirit of early Christian thought. Though the knowledge of God is intimate and personal, it does not come to us directly. It is always mediated, usually through another human being. Whether this be a mother teaching her child the Lord's Prayer, a bishop expanding a passage from the Gospels, a missionary explaining the words of the Apostles' Creed, or someone telling a friend how her life has been changed by Christ. The truth that Christians confess is transmitted through other persons, through the Christian community, the church. There is no way to Christ without martyrs, without witnesses. That's what that Greek word martyr actually means. We think of it today often as someone who dies for the faith, but it truly means someone who is a witness. And Wilkin explains that here. In Christian speech, a witness is not a reporter. The mother who talks to her child of Christ does not simply pass on what she has heard. She speaks about what she knows, the word of life. The witnesses of Christ's res resurrection not only told people what they had seen, but also spoke of what had happened to them because of what they had seen. So I wanted to spend a few moments here telling you the story of Fatima because it touched our hearts. Uh, we named our daughter after St. Jacinta because you heard that Mary said to Lucia, her cousin, that she would go to heaven. Over the course of the visits, they found out that it was going to be sooner rather than later. So in 1919, she died from Spanish influenza. And Jacinta knew this full well all throughout these apparitions. And it didn't change her faith. Some skeptics might say, well, of course, she's just going to the prize. But when you look at her life and when you see how Lucia describes her, she leaned even harder on the heart of our Lord Jesus, knowing that she only had a little bit of time. It didn't change in any aspect of her life. She knew what was true, and she was willing to pursue after it. And so as Kelly's actually the first one, as we talk about being witnesses, introduced me to Fatima. So I really didn't know much about Fatima until about five years ago. She was in a Bible study or a book study. They read through Lucia's diary, um, and it's just become a strong devotion for our lives. And we named our daughter Jacinta because I want the same thing for her. Should she die tomorrow, the next two years, or live a super long life? Like, I want her to look after the example of Jacinta and be like, just knowing you're going to die is not going to change a thing. Our Lord loves us. And he will take us to him. Should we be faithful to him? She's a faithful witness who can be trusted. And so as we consider things tonight about the last things, I wanted to just put it in this frame of reference. The whole story of Fatima, we heard 
when Mary and Lucia are talking, we heard them talk about heaven. We heard them talk about purgatory. And then in the course of the visions, of the apparitions, the children actually got a vision of hell. Mary showed them where poor sinners go, and they had a glimpse into the suffering of hell. And so I want to just offer it as St. Jacinta has been a witness for me of not just sharing things about God or about reality, but speaking about who he is. And she can be trusted. And so we're going to talk, begin kind of a series of like, hey, we're actually getting into some more meaty things that might cause discussion. So if purgatory is a new concept to you, I just offer, put it in that frame of reference. Like these are real events and they're grounded in history. And so consider that authority, not by power, by witness of life, into when you consider are they real or not. Listen to a summary of what Catholics believe about the last four things, last things. For all people, the present earthly life will end in death. The separation of the immortal spiritual soul from the mortal human body. In accordance with one's faith and conduct in this life, every person will be justly judged at the moment of death and will go to a proper reward or punishment which happens at the particular or immediate judgment. The souls of the redeemed who are in need of further purification before entering God's holy presence will be purged in purgatory of any remaining imperfection prior to the admission into heaven. Hell or eternal damnation awaits those who die in an unrepentant (coughs) state, apart from God's friendship and outside the state of grace. These are temporary states until the last days, the eschaton, where Jesus will return in power and glory, power and glory called the parousia, at which time all the dead will be raised with incorruptible bodies, their souls now reunited with resurrected bodies that are fitted for eternal existence, some in a resurrection of life, others in a resurrection of judgment. At this time, God's whole plan for the world will be revealed, and in his mercy and justice, and his mercy and justice will be fully demonstrated, which we'll call the universal or final judgment. All, including those still alive, will be judged and rewarded for the good or evil they have done in this life. And God will restore creation in a new heaven and a new earth. Here the redeemed, those accepted those who accepted God's grace of salvation and lived accordingly will dwell in God's presence forever, while the unredeemed, those who rejected God's grace of salvation and lived accordingly, will suffer forever in hell in accordance with their decision to live apart from God's friendship by refusing the gift of eternal life in his Son. So I may, might make mention, um, if you heard some new phrases here that you've never heard before, at the back of your handout, actually, um, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I compiled a glossary of terms or topics that might come up that you might be like, I've never heard of that word. What does it mean? So it's there for your reference. Um, we'll probably see a little bit of a repeated list next week when we talk about grace and the sacraments. 
because the two kind of really do go hand in hand. So if we're looking at the summary, the reality is all this begins with death. So death is when our earthly life comes to an end with the departure of our soul, which is immortal, from our body, which is mortal. Death entered the world because of sin. It is contrary to God's creative plan and is the last enemy to be conquered. So death was not originally in God's plan. And ultimately he goes to the end of defeating death itself with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. By submitting in love to the Father's will and suffering death for our sins, Jesus transformed the curse of death and gave a po- death a positive meaning for Christians. Accordingly, we can say with St. Paul, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then also, this saying is sure, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Since death ends our earthly pilgrimage, it ends the time in God's grace and mercy in which we decide our ultimate destiny. It is appointed for men to die once. We do not return for a second chance, nor is there reincarnation after death. Death ends an opportunity for humans to accept or to reject the divine grace manifested in Christ. I might make mention of this too, while we're talking about no reincarnation. We don't become angels. When we die, we're human beings and we continue on being human beings. Angels are completely different creatures. So um, it's a nice thought that we think, oh yeah, he went and got their wings. But um, I don't think you necessarily want to change your being. You want to keep on being who you are, just in a glorified state. So human beings remain human beings. We don't become angels when we die. It is imperative that we prepare ourselves always for the hour of death. Every action of yours, every thought, should be thought of the, should be those of one who expects to die before the day is out. Death would have no great terrors for you if you had a quiet conscience. Then why not keep clear of sin instead of running away from death? If you aren't fit to face death today, it's very unlikely that you will be tomorrow. remember Hamlet to be or not to be I don't actually know why he has the skull or it's why it's always portrayed but sometimes you'll see imagery from the medieval times of monks or individuals keeping a skull on their desk and it's actually for that exact purpose to remember that you will die so there's actually an old Latin phrase that used to be passed around in monasteries momentum mori remember your death So they'd be walking down the hallway and they'd say, brother, remember your death. And that sounds very morbid to us. Um, But it's because they were pushing themselves to keep in mind that today is not the final day of our race. We have a race that we're running. And remember where you are running to. And I might just add to, can't we all say, 
I need to be doing this a little bit better. I know I can speak in that. Um, we get lost in our daily lives, and, but um, how blessed it is to really consider where's my final end and to be aware of that. And so I deeply pray that all of us can have that grace um, to know that today, this life is not the only lives that we're going to live. And this is why, too, as Christians, we keep great concern for the dying. So the dying should be given attention and care to help them live their life, live their last moments in dignity and peace. They will be helped by the prayer of their relatives who must see to it that the sick receive at the proper time the sacraments and prayer them to meet the living God. The bodies of the dead must be treated with respect and charity and faith and hope of the resurrection. The burial of the dead is a corporal work of mercy. It honors the children of God who are temples of the Holy Spirit. And autopsies can be morally permitted for legal inquest or scientific research. The free gift of organs after death is legitimate and can be meritorious. The church permits cremation, provided that it does not demonstrate a denial of faith in the resurrection of the body. All right, so then judgment. What comes after death? Judgment. There is a particular immediate judgment once we die. The New Testament repeatedly affirms that every person will be rewarded immediately after death in accordance with his or her faith and works with different destinies determined on that basis. Each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death, in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ, either entrance into blessedness of heaven through a purification or immediately, or immediate and everlasting damnation. Those who die in God's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified live forever with Christ. They are like God forever, for they see him as he is, face to face. And then when the end of time comes, there's a universal or final judgment. At the end of the world, as we know it, there will be a final universal judgment prior to which all the dead, both the just and the unjust, will be raised, their souls reunited with the resurrected bodies, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. At this time, Christ will come in glory, will come in his glory, and all the angels with him. He will gather all the nations, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd, shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats and he will go place the sheep at his right hand but the goats at the left the righteous will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life and that scripture verse there from matthew um, we can look it up but if you had the scene it's probably one of the most striking where our Lord says, what you did to the least of these, you did it to me. And so he's saying, whether you recognized it or not, how you cared for everybody is how you will be judged. 
um, which is why we hold up that standard of treating everyone like Christ, um, whether we want to or not. Love your enemies um, and do good for them. In the presence of Christ, who is truth himself, the truth of each man's relationship will be laid bare. The last judgment will reveal even to its furthest consequences the good each person has done or failed to do during his earthly life. Only the Father knows the day and the hour of this final judgment, when through his Son he will pronounce the final word on all history. At this time, all our questions about the ultimate meaning of everything, including all the mysteries of how God's providence was leading everything toward its final end, will be answered. And it will be plain that God's justice and righteous do finally triumph over all injustice and evil. This message of inevitable and inescapable judgment should call us all to conversion during the present period of God's patient waiting, even as it should inspire us in a holy fear that commits us to live and serve as kingdom citizens of our Lord. Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. It results in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace that is of the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. For our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. However, although we can judge that an act is in itself a grave offense, we must entrust judgment of persons to the justice and mercy of God. And as humans, um, we all have freedom of will. Um, If you remember my story that I began with, uh, one of our first sessions, I was talking about my friend Steve. He's a great man, um, died tragically because a gentleman that was dying uh, or evading parole hit him in the back of his truck and he died on impact Um, and everyone says what a tragedy because Steve was such a God-fearing man well the same freedom that allowed Steve to be this great man of God is the same freedom that allows individuals to um, commit horrible crimes God's not going to force us into loving him we have that free will all the way up until the moment we die. Once we die, it's cemented. So um, that's why we say it's the immediate judgment. Like You have the opportunity to choose all the way up until death. So then um, when we die, should uh, we die in a state of grace and that friendship with God? Um, if there's any still taint of sin... Um, We need to be purified. And so the church calls this state of being, it's a time of purification. So as we see that right here, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The doctrine of purgatory was not questioned until the Protestant Reformation. The church gave the name purgatory to the reality, to the final purification of the elect, and formulated the doctrine at the councils of Florence and Trent. 
So then, Vern, you might be able to help me um, with this, but we have that point there. The word idea fallacy, so equating the presence or absence of an idea with the occurrence or non-occurrence of the word that names it. So although there might not have been a name for purgatory, it doesn't mean that it existed, it did not exist as a concept. It was something that was held and understood for um, the beginning of the faith. And so just because the word didn't exist doesn't mean that the concept or the understanding did not exist. Uh, and then you see some there, some supporting passages from Scripture. Purgatory is more than a temporal punishment for sin. It is also cleansing from the attachment to sin. Purgatory purifies the soul before the soul's grand entrance into heaven. Part of the process of purgatory is a gradual purification of all misguided loves, all particular hates and misgivings, and all resentments, envies, rivalries, jealousies, hard-heartedness, or lack of mercy towards other persons. Seen in this life, purgatory is a gift of God's mercy, not an infliction of pain or torment, even if there's temporary sufferings amidst the expectant joy. Purgatory is more a spiritual state than a literal place. The state between death and glory when we are made ready for the beatific vision of beholding God face to face and dwelling in the personal presence of his perfect holiness and glory. Except for the martyrs and others who have walked into extraordinary and walked in extraordinary intimacy with God, some kind of purging and purification has happened between death and glory. All Christians believe this. Catholics have a term for it, even if many of the details, location, length of time remain a mystery to us. We're not going to read the whole sections here on that next page. The tradition of church talks um, in reference to certain texts in sacred scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. So you can go back and read those. But just that understanding of where God's handiwork, metals can be refined even after death so that we're made perfect in heaven. And then that last point, the doctrine of purgatory cannot be separated from the practice of praying for the dead found first in the Jewish and then continued in the Christian tradition. See there, therefore Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. From the beginning of the church, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them. Above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. And it also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Let us help and commemorate them. And I might just say to uh, indulgences, uh, we will probably pick it up at a different time if anyone has questions about that. Um, um, and so just knowing, like, hey, if you have questions about that, we'll revisit it as well. Um, brief, like, okay, I've heard of these things. Uh, there's, you know, good and bad stories about indulgences. Um, gets a bad rap, but ultimately what they are, are the church offering us remedies to live faithful lives. So the church opens up her treasures of mercy 
so that you might pursue the faith and live it in a way that gives glory to God. And so, like, there's certain factors that you meet, but if you look at them, they're all saying, follow after Jesus. This is what indulgences are meant to do. And if we believe Jesus, who he is, then, of course, there would be this great outpouring of mercy and grace. Um, but we'll pick that up. Okay, any questions about purgatory? That might be a new concept for all, but just kind of that concept. Spiritual state after death, if we still have any stain of sin or we still need to be purified of inordinate desires. So this is at least a little bit of like me just saying, well, believe me because I'm telling it to you. But if we look in our heart of hearts, I know that I have faith that I'm walking as best as I can be and most assuredly as I can be with our, uh, with our Lord. But I do know that if I was to die, that I still have a lot of things that I still need to work on that I would need to be purified of. And it makes human sense that God's going to just work with me in my humanity even after death to be like, let's work on this. Um, he's not just going to like, yeah. And then uh, since we're going to move on to heaven, um, Father Worth kind of said underneath, not it wasn't underneath his breath, but just not for everybody. He said, don't shoot for purgatory. Some people say this like, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a false, it's a false humility um, that. As long as I get to purgatory, then at least I'll get to yeah, at some point. But it's like. What happens if you miss purgatory? Like, if that's where you're shooting, you better, like, if you're shooting for God's basement, and that's not what purgatory is, but we'll use, like, you better go to the highest floor, shoot for heaven There's instead of, that's yeah. That's why I mean. We can live in such a way by God's grace that um, we can live a life aided by God's grace to merit heaven, like, once we die. So um, consider that as a reality. Sure, yeah, it might be like that's a lot, but... Um, there's saints who have walked that path. Uh, and it can be for us too. So heaven, heaven as the blessed communion of God and the souls of all the redeemed, those who die in God's grace and friendship will live forever in a perfect communion of life and love with the Holy Trinity, with all the redeemed, the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme and definitive happiness. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has opened the way of heaven for those who believe in him, who remain faithful to his will. Heaven is the blessed community of all who are in Christ. This mystery of blessed communion with God and all who are in Christ is beyond all understanding and description. Scripture speaks of it in images, life, light, peace, wedding feast, wine of the kingdom, the Father's house, the heavenly Jerusalem paradise. But yet no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So I don't want to, I think I said, but yet, um, added that little, just because we have these human imagery is what I want to highlight just by saying that. Um, because we need a human understanding, but like is going to be greater than anything that we could imagine. Like, our eyes will be open. We haven't seen. Um, we haven't even, in the heart of man, conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And it's not just 
uh, an escape. So ultimately, um, we talked about the great story. It ends with recreation, like our experience here, a new creation. Chad, I saw you um, don't want to be saying wrong words, but we end in a new heavens and a new earth, an earth renewed as our final home of the resurrected, redeemed. Uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead and lives forever, so he will raise up the righteous on the last day. At the end of time, as we know it, God's kingdom will come in its fullness, and the righteous, glorified in body and soul, will reign with Christ forever. The universe itself will be renewed, and a new heavens and a new earth, which will be the definitive realization of God's plan to bring under a single head all things in Christ things in heaven and on earth. In this new universe, the heavenly Jerusalem, God will have his dwelling among men. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This consummation will be the final realization of the unity of the human race, which God willed from creation those who are reunited who are united with Christ will form the community of the redeemed the holy city of God the bride the wife of the lamb she will not be wounded any longer by sin stains self-love that destroy or wound the earthly community the beatific vision in which God opens himself up in an inexhaustible way to the elect will be ever-flowing wellspring of happiness, peace, and mutual communion. All right, so hell. Hell is the eternal state of torment and despair which awaits those who in this life have freely rejected God's offer of gracious gift of eternal life with him, and his holy angels, and all who belong to him. God does not send people to hell, but he makes it possible for those who choose to reject him forever to have it, have it as they have chosen in a place where all that is of God is absent. There are only two eternal destinies, heaven or hell, union or disunion with God. Each one of us will either be with God or without him forever. If hell is not real, the church and the Bible are also liars. Our basis for believing in the reality of hell is exactly the same authority as our basis for believing in the reality of heaven, Christ, his church, and her scriptures. If hell is not real, then Jesus is either a fool or a liar, for he warned us repeatedly with utmost seriousness about it. There is no reincarnation, no second chance after time is over. There is no annihilation, no end of the soul's existence. There is no change of species from human being to angel or to anything else. We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. But we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, against our neighbor, and, or against ourselves. To die in mortal sin without rep repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, or the unquenchable fire reserved for those 
who to the end of their lives refuse to believe or be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire, and that he will pronounce the condemnation, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. The teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the soul of those who have died in a state of mortal sin descend into hell. When they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. The reality of hell should call at, should serve as an urgent call to responsibility, to exercise our freedom in the view of what is at stake, our eternal destiny, and to conversion. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary. And persistent, it's in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of her faithful, the church implores the mercy of God, who does not want any to perish, but, uh, but all come to repentance. So I might table my demonstration. I'm taking my tools home. But you can see it. I have an analogy to kind of put this uh, in just kind of perspective of how we can understand um, some of the things that we've talked about using a board. The real example that I like to use is a mirror. Um, and you'll see why next week. But I don't have a fire odd enough or the skill to smelt a mirror back together. Um, but I do have a hammer that I can take nails out of. And I had wood filler. I have a saw. And so I can use this, as, although I feel like it's an imperfect example. Um, so I'm going to table this for next week because we're going to kind of pick up um, what's the vehicle on which we come to reach this state of grace, this blessedness. Um, as we talk about grace in the sacraments before we actually start discussing the sacraments one by one. So it's kind of very fitting that we flow from um, the last four things to talking about grace in the sacraments. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.